0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: All set for your flight? Yep, I've got everything I need. I'mass neck pillow, T-Mobile, headphones. Wait, T-Mobile? You bet. Free in-flight Wi-Fi. 15% off all Hilton brands. I never go anywhere without T-Mobile. Same goes from a water bottle, chewing gum, nail clippers, okay, passport. Okay, I'm gonna, gonna socks, leave you to
2: it. Find out how you can experience travel better at T-Mobile.com travel. Qualifying plan required. Wi-Fi were available on select U.S. airlines. Deposit and Hilton Honors membership required for 15% discount. Terms and conditions apply.
0: We're sponsored again this week by Simon & Schuster, publishers of Lincoln on the Verge, 13 Days to Washington by Ted Widmer, which is available now.
2: Widmer deftly chronicles President-elect Abraham Lincoln's inaugural journey from Springfield, Illinois to Washington, D.C., as the nation was already tearing itself apart and on the verge of civil war. How did Lincoln survive this grueling odyssey? Lincoln on the Verge tells the story of a leader discovering his own strength, improvising brilliantly, and introducing himself to his fellow Americans. The journey would draw on all of Lincoln's mental and physical reserves, but the president-elect discovered an inner strength that would help him and the nation Through those perilous times.
0: Lincoln on the Verge is available now. If your local bookstore is temporarily closed, try ordering it online, perhaps at bn.com or Amazon. It's also available as a downloadable ebook and audiobook.
2: Hey, everyone. Welcome to Episode 321 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich.
0: And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As y'all recall, previously on the podcast, we've said that there were several, or actually five, subordinate commanders whose decisions, when taken together, resulted in a battle being fought at Gettysburg starting on July 1st even though neither Robert E. Lee nor George Meade necessarily intended for that to happen. And out of those five men, so far we've looked at four of them.
2: Right. So far, as we've seen, there was Confederate Corps Commander Lieutenant General A.P. Hill, who decided to push two-thirds of his corps, about 15,000 men, toward Gettysburg on July 1, 1863, in order to, in his words, quote, discover what was in my front.
0: And then, also on the Confederate side, was a division commander in Hill's Corps, Major General Henry Heath, who would later claim, quote, the Battle of Gettysburg was by the result purely of an accident, for which I am probably more than anyone else accountable.
2: On the Federal side, there was Brigadier General John Buford, commander of the 1st Division, in the Army of the Potomac's Cavalry Corps, Buford rode into town on June 30th with two of his brigades, those commanded by Colonels William Gamble and Thomas Stevin. Buford decided to fight a delaying action at Gettysburg the next day, July 1st, with the goal, as he said, quote, to prevent the enemy from getting the town before our army could get up.
0: And then, also on the Federal side, was First Corps Commander Major General John Reynolds. Since Reynolds was killed shortly after the start of the battle, he unfortunately was never able to complete an after action battle report explaining the decisions he made on the morning of July 1st. But from his words and actions that day, we can tell that his goal was certainly to keep the Confederates out of Gettysburg and away from the key defensive terrain just to the south of town for as long as possible.
2: Before he was killed, John Reynolds sent an aide racing off to Tawneytown with a message for George Meade, telling the Union Army commander, quote, "The enemy are advancing in strong force. I fear they will get to the heights beyond the town before I can. I will fight them inch by inch, and if driven into the town, I will barricade the streets and hold them back as long as possible." End quote. Besides commanding his own corps, Reynolds had also been placed in charge of the army's left wing, so he also sent messengers galloping off to the 11th Corps' Otis Howard, telling him to come up as quickly as possible, and to the 3rd Corps' Dan Sickles, alerting Sickles that fighting had broken out at Gettysburg.
0: And that brings us to the fifth of the subordinate commanders on our list, and it's actually someone we've already talked about quite a bit since it was his corps that led the rebel army into Pennsylvania. And that, of course, is Lieutenant General Richard Yule.
2: Really, the last time we talked about Dick Yule, he had received that recall order from Robert E. Lee, and so was backtracking. That is, he was on his way back to rejoin the rest of the Confederate army after he'd advanced tantalizingly close to Harrisburg with a division of Robert Rhodes. And a bit downriver the Georgians of Gordon's Brigade from Jubal Early's division had marched right up to the banks of the Susquehanna, only to watch the Wrightsville-Columbia Bridge go up in flames before they could capture it.
0: Perhaps the one good decision that A.P. Hill made during the entire campaign was, with his men in motion, to notify fellow Corps Commander Dick Yule on the morning of July 1st that he was moving toward Gettysburg. Yule, who just then was traveling with Rhodes Divisions as it marched south from Carlisle, was trying to make sense of Lee's orders of June 29th that instructed him to march his corps to either Cashtown or Gettysburg, quote, as circumstances dictated.
2: Rhodes reached Heidlersburg on the evening of June 30th after a wet, rainy march of 22 miles and camped near Early's division, which had come over from York just to the east. Yule's other division, commanded by Allegheny Johnson, was off to the west, escorting the Corps wagon trains, and in fact would end up approaching Gettysburg by way of the Chambersburg Pike along with Hill's and Longstreet's troops.
0: At any rate, on the 30th, Yule met with Rhodes and Early to try to make sense of Lee's June 29th orders instructing him to march to either Cashtown or Gettysburg as circumstances dictated. Not accustomed to Robert E. Lee's oftentimes discretionary orders, Yule was vexed by the Army commander's quote-unquote indefinite phraseology and wondered aloud why someone on Lee's headquarters staff couldn't learn to write a clear set of instructions.
2: Having learned that Hill's Corps was that day massing at Cashtown, Yule assumed that Cashtown was the desired point to which Lee wished him to march, and decided to go there. However, when A.P. Hill's courier found Yule sometime around 9 a.m. on the morning of July 1st, and told him that the divisions of Heath and Pender were now marching to Gettysburg, Dick Yule decided to change course and swing roads in early south, since the circumstances— now seemed to indicate he should also march to Gettysburg.
0: And so, Robert Rhodes' 8,000-man division tramped south along the Newville Road, while Jubal Early's 5,500 men followed a parallel route several miles farther east, marching south along the Harrisburg Road. The roads would bring them together eight miles to the south at Gettysburg.
2: Yule sent his stepson Major J. Campbell Brown, who also served on his staff, to let Lee know that he too was marching to Gettysburg. And so, because of Dick Yule's decision not to go on to Cashtown after all, but instead to swing the divisions of Rhodes and Early south to Gettysburg, that meant that Wednesday morning, four Confederate divisions, two from Hill's Corps and two from Yule's Corps, a total of about 28,500 Confederate soldiers, were making their way toward Gettysburg, advancing on the town from the west and north. At the same time, but drawing toward Gettysburg from the south, marched the soldiers of two Federal Corps, the 1st and 11th, some 16,500 strong,
0: And with Ewell's march to Gettysburg with the divisions of Rhodes and Early being the last piece of the puzzle, so to speak, we've now looked at all five of the subordinate commanders whose decisions, when taken together, resulted in a battle being fought at Gettysburg starting on July 1st, even though neither Robert E. Lee nor George Meade necessarily intended for that to happen.
2: Okay, so meanwhile, back at Gettysburg, when last we left the action there, Harry Heath was not going to be denied. Despite the Yankees' stubborn resistance, and despite his orders not to bring on a serious engagement, Heath was determined to push on. As he later wrote, quote, Blood now having been drawn, there seemed no calling off the battle.
0: But Heath should have called it off. At the very least, he should have broken off the action, halted his advance, and sent word back to A.P. Hill, who was feeling poorly that day and had remained at Cashtown. Heath should have let Hill know that there was a strong enemy force, force at Gettysburg disputing his advance, and he should have requested further orders.
2: But instead, Heath made the reckless decision to charge headlong into battle. Up until this point, Archer's skirmishers, who were fanned out on both sides of the Chambersburg Pike just ahead of the Confederate March column, had been able to exert enough pressure to steadily push back the stubborn Yankees. But from the crest of Hur's Ridge, Heath could see a much stronger enemy line spread out before him on McPherson's Ridge, and he concluded that skirmishers alone would no longer be enough to continue driving the Federals back so he sent orders for his two leading brigades, commanded by Archer and Davis, to deploy into lines of battle.
0: Brigadier General James Archer's Confederates filed off the road to the right, while Brigadier General Joseph Davis's troops did the same on the left. For those of you picturing this movement in that map in your head, that meant Archer would form line of battle on the south side of the Chambersburg Pike, while Davis would be to the north of the roadway.
2: On Archer's side of the road, the 7th Tennessee formed into line, with its left resting on the pike. To its right was the 14th Tennessee, the 1st Tennessee, and the 13th Alabama, while the 5th Alabama Battalion remained out front, skirmishing. Archer went into battle that morning with about 1,200 men.
0: On the northern side of the pike, the more than 1,700 men of Davis's brigade formed line of battle with the 42nd Mississippi setting its right on the road, while to its left were the 2nd Mississippi and then the 55th North Carolina.
2: Behind Heath was Major General Dorsey Pender's division, still lined up in column of march on the Chambersburg Pike. Heath, meanwhile, kept his other two brigades, commanded by James Pettigrew and John Brockenbrough, in back of Hearst Ridge in reserve. But up front, supporting the advance of the Confederate infantry from Archer's and Davis's brigades, were the guns of Major Willie Pegram's artillery battalion from the 3rd Corps Artillery Reserve. Pegram deployed 17 guns on Hurs Ridge to shell the Yankees across the way.
0: The Yankees across the way were John Buford's Union horsemen, of course, and the only question now was whether they could hold this last line of defense on McPherson's Ridge until the Federal infantry arrived on the scene.
2: To the north of the Chambersburg Pike, the troopers from Devon's Brigade would find themselves attacked by Davis's Confederates. Actually, only a small portion of Devon's command resisted the rebel advance toward McPherson's Ridge, This was the 6th New York Cavalry and two squadrons of the 9th New York, supported by a two-gun section from Lt. John Califf's Battery A, 2nd U.S. Artillery. The rest of Devon's men were deployed to the north on Oak Hill and on the plain below to the east, keeping guard against the approach of Yule's Confederates from north of Gettysburg.
0: The dismounted troopers of Gamble's Brigade, positioned astride the Chambersburg Pike and south of it, and supported by the other two guns of Caliph's battery, would bear the brunt of resisting the Confederate advance. Gamble's Brigade consisted of the 8th and 12th Illinois Cavalry, the 3rd Indiana, and 8th New York.
2: Davis's Confederates, north of the road, pressed Devon's men hard The 42nd Mississippi and the two Wright Companies of the 2nd Mississippi became heavily engaged with the Federal Cavalrymen. When Colonel John M. Stone of the 42nd Mississippi dismounted to climb over a stout fence blocking his way, he was shot by one of Devon's troopers. Stone thus became the first regimental commander to fall at Gettysburg.
0: South of the Chambersburg Pike, archers attacking Confederates advanced down into the shallow valley between Hur's Ridge and McPherson's Ridge, through which flowed a small stream, Willoughby Run. The low ground along the banks of the stream was choked with brush and brambles and boggy in spots. Private E.T. Boland of the 13th Alabama later recalled how, quote, Just before reaching Willoughby Run, the cavalry began to get stubborn, and our main battle line passed through the skirmish line.
2: The dismounted Federal cavalrymen, who had been stubbornly opposing the rebel advance, paused to dip the barrels of their rapid-firing, breech-loading carbines in the waters of Willoughby Run to cool them, then continued to fall back to Buford's main line on McPherson's Ridge.
0: On the Confederate side, having driven the last of those pesky Yankee cavalry skirmishers out of the Willoughby-run thickets and back to their main line on the ridge ahead, Archer's men, according to one Alabaman, paused to, quote, reform, reload, catch our breath, and cool off a little.
2: Forty-five-year-old Brigadier General James Archer was an experienced veteran officer A Maryland native, after graduating from Princeton, where, for some unknown reason, he was given the nickname Sally, but after Princeton, Archer practiced law until the Mexican War began in 1846, when he joined the regular army as a captain of infantry. He received a brevet for gallantry at Chapultepec. While in Mexico, his only wound was suffered in a duel with a fellow officer, And just a bit of trivia, but Archer's second in the duel was his friend, Thomas Jonathan Jackson.
0: After the war with Mexico was over, Archer went back to his law practice, but then re-entered the Army in 1855, again as an infantry captain. In March 1861, he resigned his commission and received a captaincy in the new Confederate Army. Promotion wasn't long in coming, though, and after commanding a regiment as a colonel, he was promoted to Brigadier General in June 1862. Archer's Brigade saw combat in all of the Army of Northern Virginia's major actions, from the Seven Days to Chancellorsville.
2: At Gettysburg, as his men paused before crossing Willoughby Run, James Archer felt uneasy about the tactical situation. He was quite a distance now from any support, since, remember, Heath had left Pettigrew and Brockenbraugh a ways back in reserve. In addition, to advance up to the main enemy line on the ridge ahead, Archer's men would have to cross Willoughby Run, and Archer anticipated that pushing through the heavy brush along the stream banks would disorganize his lines, as would entering some trees over on the other side of the run, where there was a wood lot owned by a farmer named John Herbst.
0: However, when Archer expressed his concerns to Heath, Heath would have none of it. Archer's instincts and experience told him there was trouble ahead, but Heath, commanding a division for the first time in battle, had his blood up. In fact, from Harry Heath's perspective, things seemed to be developing quite nicely. Thank you very much. Over on the other side of the Chambersburg Pike, Davis's brigade was advancing and pushing back that part of the Union line, while here, Archer's brigade had reached Willoughby Run and was ready to press ahead. And so, brushing off Archer's concerns, Heath repeated the order to advance.
2: By now it was nearly 10 a.m. The morning mist had burned off, the sun was out, and the temperature was soaring. Archer's Tennesseans and Alabamans plunged into the brush along the banks of the run, splashed through the stream, and started up the slope ahead, moving through the Herbst woodlot. Enemy carbine fire rattled faster than ever in front of them. Men went down, but the sheer weight of Confederate numbers meant Buford's line on McPherson's Ridge was quickly reaching its breaking point.
0: One can only imagine the relief as Buford's exhausted troopers looked back and, just when the situation was most desperate, just as it seemed they would be overwhelmed, they saw the first of John Reynolds' federal infantry come rushing up to the battlefield sometime about 10.15.
2: Buford's line on McPherson's Ridge had started to buckle when Brigadier General Lysander Cutler's brigade the lead element of Wadsworth's division, arrived at the double quick, with the sweating Yankee foot soldiers huffing and puffing from the effort. The welcome sight of the Federal Infantry coming up behind them, just in the nick of time, gave Buford's hard-pressed cavalrymen's spirits a lift.
0: Major John Beveridge, commanding the 8th Illinois Cavalry, heaved a sigh of relief at the sight of the Federal Infantry, Led by Reynolds and Wadsworth in person, coming across the meadow on the double quick.
2: An officer in the 8th New York said simply, quote, How grateful and glad we battered troopers were then. Another New Yorker admitted, quote, There was a sense of relief on my own part which I shall never forget when we saw the grand old First Corps coming.
1: So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
0: I asked father how the soldiers would cross the high fence surrounding our garden. I did not have to wait long until my curiosity was satisfied, for the fence fell as if it were made of paper as the men pressed against it with crowbars and picks. I always had a desire to see something of a battle, so here was my opportunity. I quietly slipped from the house to the edge of the woods, back of the seminary, and was enjoying the awe-inspiring scene when a bullet flew so near my head that I could hear the whizzing sound it made. That, and a call from a signal officer on the cupola, sent me speeding to the house. There I found that all the family had repaired to the cellar for safety, and well they did, for in a very short time two shells struck the building. Lydia Ziegler, resident of Gettysburg.
2: Buford's Union cavalrymen had bought just enough time for the 1st Federal Infantry to reach the battlefield. Once he decided to make a fight of it outside Gettysburg, John Reynolds' most urgent need was to get his lead division, commanded by Brigadier General James Wadsworth, to McPherson's Ridge to relieve Buford's hard-pressed troopers.
0: At the head of the 1st Corps column coming up the Emmitsburg Road from the south was Wadsworth's leading brigade, commanded by Cutler, comprised of one Pennsylvania and four New York regiments. Cutler's brigade was followed in the march column by Captain James Hall's Battery B of the 2nd Main Light Artillery.
2: At some point, Reynolds had directed Wadsworth to halt his command just south of Gettysburg, near the Codori Farm, and await further instructions. When Cutler stopped there, it allowed Wattsworth's 2nd Brigade, the Iron Brigade, to close up behind them.
0: As the men of the Iron Brigade had marched north that morning up the Emmitsburg Road toward Gettysburg, someone started a rumor that George McClellan had been restored to command of the Army of the Potomac a soldier in the 6th wisconsin reported that at the news that little mac was back in charge quote our fellows cheered like mad
2: this story is accompanied by much off microphone head shaking and eye rolling not because we doubt its accuracy but because it boggles our minds that anyone in the army of the potomac would be happy to have little mac back in charge i mean that's just crazy But anyway,
0: but anyway, when Reynolds galloped back to the Emmitsburg Road south of town after leaving Buford, he met Wadsworth for a hurried consultation. In the distance, the waiting soldiers of Cutler's brigade could see smoke rolling up from the rebel cannon, and Buford's horse artillery, and according to one of the men, hanging about in clouds.
2: Reynolds told Wadsworth to forget marching Cutler's men and the Iron Brigade through Gettysburg. It would take too much time, and just then, time was of the essence. So Reynolds said the men would leave the Emmitsburg Road, cut across the fields to the left, skirt the southwest edge of town, come up over Seminary Ridge, and then on to relieve the beleaguered Union cavalry and do it at the double quick.
0: This would be no light jog. On a straight line, Wadsworth's two brigades would have to double quick for a mile and a quarter in the heat and humidity just to reach the seminary and then on to relieve Buford's troopers. But the call pioneers to the front went up, and hurrying forward, the men wielding the axes and crowbars that would be used to tear down the fences in their way got to work. Soon Cutler's men were pouring through the brakes in the roadside fences, and off they went across the fields
2: in his book on Gettysburg. Stephen Sears describes the scene. Quote, Reynolds directed them to march cross lots with all speed for a time he sat his big black charger at the roadside cut-off, an inspiriting figure directing traffic into the fields, letting the men see the general who was pointing them to battle. When Reynolds had everyone in motion, he spurred ahead to put Cutler's troops and Hall's guns into position personally.
0: On the back side of McPherson's Ridge, John Reynolds and his staff galloped this way and that, directing the approaching units of the First Corps. Reynolds sent Captain Hall's guns into battery in a perilously exposed position on the forward edge of the ridge. As Caliph withdrew his horse artillery, Reynolds told Hall he needed his battery to keep the enemy cannon across the way occupied while the Union infantry were deploying. Then he would pull Hall's guns back to a safer position.
2: Reynolds ordered Wadsworth to hustle some infantry into position to support Hall's guns and Wadsworth passed the order to Cutler, whose five regiments were just then double-timing past the seminary and out toward McPherson's Ridge. As Cutler's 1,600 men swept past the seminary, he divided his brigade, sending three of his regiments, the 76th New York, 56th Pennsylvania, and 147th New York, north of the Chambersburg Pike and north of the railroad cut, with instructions to form up on the right of Hall's battery, while his remaining two regiments, the 95th New York and 14th Brooklyn, took up positions around the McPherson Farm Buildings, south of the pike and to the left of Hall's guns.
0: With Cutler's brigade going into position, Reynolds next rode back to the crest of McPherson's Ridge, behind the Herbst Woodlot, to hurry along the Iron Brigade, which was just then reaching the scene. Commanded by Brigadier General Solomon Meredith, the men of the Iron Brigade were some of the hardest fighting soldiers in the Army of the Potomac, having earned that reputation at Bronner's Farm, South Mountain, and Antietam, where they suffered appalling losses.
2: The only all-Western Brigade in the Army of the Potomac, the men from Indiana, Michigan, and Wisconsin, were easily recognizable on any battlefield since they didn't wear the standard sack coat and kepi, but rather their dress frocks and tall black hardee hats pinned up on one side. Here at Gettysburg, as the Iron Brigade rushed forward at the double quick toward the Herbst Woodlot, the 2nd Wisconsin was in the lead, hastily loading their muskets on the run as they jogged past the seminary.
0: Already pushing into the Woodlot from the west were Archer's Confederates. The rebels were attacking, chasing the last of Buford's Union cavalrymen out of the woods. As the 2nd Wisconsin raced forward, there was no time to lose, no time to wait for the rest of the brigade to catch up. Reynolds sent them straight into the woods, and he followed, urging them on.
2: Cattle grazed this land, so that meant the space under the widely scattered, towering oaks was open and free of underbrush. On July 1st, this otherwise pleasant, park-like woodlot was about to be turned into a horrific killing zone. Just as the men of the 2nd Wisconsin entered the Herbst Woodlot, a devastating volley erupted almost in their faces. The Confederates had cut loose at a range of just 40 or 50 yards. That volley reportedly struck down a full 30% of the advancing Federals. However, the survivors of that opening blast pressed forward, and there quickly developed a savage firefight, with the two lines standing just a stone's throw apart, there and amongst the scattered trees.
0: For the moment, the men of the 2nd Wisconsin were fighting the rebels alone in the increasingly bullet-torn and smoke-shrouded woods, but coming up quickly to help were their fellow badgers from the 7th Wisconsin. In fact, it's very likely the last thing John Reynolds ever saw was the soldiers of the 7th Wisconsin sweeping forward from Seminary Ridge toward the Herbst Woodlot and fanning out into line of battle, as the second had done just minutes earlier.
2: The moment of Reynolds' death was recalled later by his orderly, Sergeant Charles Vale. The action had now commenced in real earnest, the general rode along in rear of our line toward the woods on our left, called, I believe, McPherson's, though I heard while in Gettysburg that they belonged to Mr. Herbst. As he rode along, he saw the enemy advancing through the woods. The general saw at a glance that something desperate must be done. There was a regiment coming down from the seminary. He ordered it to forward into line at the double quick and ordered them to charge into the woods "'leading the charge in person. "'The regiment charged into the woods nobly, "'but the enemy was too strong, "'and they had to give way to the right. "'The enemy still pushed on "'and was now not much more than sixty paces "'from where the general was. "'Mini-Balls was flying thick. "'The general turned to look towards the seminary, "'I suppose, to see if the other troops were coming on, "'and as he did so, "'a minie ball struck him in the back of the neck.' and he fell from his horse dead. He never spoke a word or moved a muscle after he was struck. I have seen many men killed in action, but never saw a ball do its work so instantly as did the ball which struck General Reynolds. A man who knew not what fear or danger was, in a word, was one of our very best generals. He would never order a body of troops where he had not been himself or where he did not dare go. The last words the lamented general spoke were, Forward, men, forward for God's sake, and drive those fellows out of those woods.
0: That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is, Gettysburg, The Story of the Battle with Maps, by the editors of Stackpole Books.
2: Now, our go-to Gettysburg map book is still Phil Lano's Atlas, but if you're looking for something a bit more uh, colorful and accessible and less expensive, you might take a look at this book by Stackpole. For example, on pages 12 and 13, you can see the arrival of Cutler's Brigade and where Hall's guns are positioned, and see where the Iron Brigade goes in at the Herbst Woodlot. lot. Also, one of the things we especially like about this book is that the maps, rather than just focusing on one section of the battlefield, instead give you the big picture so you can see what's happening and where units are positioned on different parts of the battlefield at the same time. And we like that very much.
0: Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations, including Gettysburg, The Story of the Battle with Maps, by the editors of Stackpole Books, if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org.
2: Also at the website, you can find links to the show's Facebook page and Twitter feed, and find our contact information.
0: You'll also find a donate button if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, but there's also information about how to support the podcast on a monthly basis over on Patreon.
2: Speaking of Patreon, we want to thank the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade. Brewster, Karen, Maggie, Dan, F. Panatti, Morgan, Timothy, and last but not least, Peter.
0: And thanks to Ryan for his donation this past week.
2: And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next week, but until then, take care.
0: Thanks, everyone. Bye.
2: Hey everyone, just a reminder that we were sponsored again this week by Simon & Schuster, publishers of Lincoln on the Verge, 13 Days to Washington, by Ted Widmer, which is available now.
0: Lincoln on the Verge tells the story of a leader discovering his own strength, improvising brilliantly, and introducing himself to his fellow Americans. Lincoln's inaugural journey from his home in Illinois to the nation's capital would draw on all of his mental and physical reserves, but the president-elect discovered an inner strength that would help him and the nation through those perilous times.
2: Lincoln on the Verge is available now. If your local bookstore is temporarily closed, try ordering it online, perhaps at bn.com or Amazon. It's also available as a downloadable ebook and audiobook.